Praise the Lord. Titus chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 11 through 15 today. Before we read these verses together, let's begin by talking about crossing the street. I'm sure you've heard from your mom or your dad, probably your mom most often, look both ways before you cross. Look right, look left, make sure no cars are coming so that you don't get smacked by a car, right? This isn't rocket science. You need to look before you cross the street because you don't want to get hit by a car or something else going across the street. But even at places full of smart people like Yale, they need reminders to look both ways. Yale, a couple years ago, put out a campaign to remind its students, bright as they are, to look both ways before they cross the street. You know why they did this? They did this because the students were so absorbed with what was right in front of them that they didn't even bother to look. And guess what was right in front of them all the time? Their cell phones, right? Our eyes are face down, planted, texting or surfing the web or looking at social media. And we walk right out into the street without even looking. And then we get hit by a car. And that was happening to students at Yale. Even though they were really bright, they needed to be told something so elementary as look right and look left before you cross. They had a myopic vision, a a nearsightedness, looking at just what was right in front of them and not paying any attention to their surroundings. And this happens to us too. Not when we cross the street, but just as we go through daily life, we have a myopic vision of what's in front of us. We just see the immediate and the now. I feel this especially in 2020, and I bet you do too. It's so easy to be completely absorbed with what is directly in front of us. We have an election that seems as crazy as anything could be. We have riots in our nation. We have a pandemic right now that's clearly affecting all of us in many and numerous ways, so, such that it feels hard To remember 2019 and remember what it was like before coronavirus was a household word, right? Remember what it was like before we knew the name George Floyd. It's hard to remember 2019 and it's even harder sometimes to to visualize, to think about what will 2021 bring. I can't even think very easily past what will happen in November, What will happen after the election? What will happen as a result of the election? All of these things are hard to see because square in my vision, my myopia is narrowing me right to the present. And I imagine it is for you too. This happens to us so easily in the Christian life. And yet, we are called to look both ways as we go about this life. We are called to look both back to what Christ has done, and forward to what Christ will do. John Stott says this about our text today. He says, the best way to live now, in this present age, is to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically. Namely, to look in opposite directions at the same time. And we're really bad at that, aren't we? We're really bad at looking back and remembering what Christ has done and looking forward and longing for what Christ will do. We look so much at the present. And Stott says in this text, what this shows us, and I agree with him, 
is that the best way to live now in the present is to learn to look in opposite directions at once, to learn to look both ways, to learn to live now, today, in light of yesterday and in light of tomorrow. And that's what Paul does in this text. This sermon is called Twin Epiphanies of Grace and Glory. Now, if you didn't grow up doing the church calendar, then you might not know what Epiphany is. If you did, you might know what it is, or you might have heard of it. Epiphany comes from the Greek word, which means to appear. And the Epiphany is the season of celebration after Christmas that celebrates that that Jesus is now appeared, incarnate, the one we've been waiting for, has appeared. The Epiphany celebrates his appearing. And that's what Paul does in verses 11 to 15. Paul draws our attention to two epiphanies or two appearings of glory and of grace. He draws our attention to those so that we can know how to live in the present. This text starts with the word for. And remember, Titus 2, 1 to 10 was all about how we live out godliness in the present. And now Paul is saying, live in the present this way because of what Christ has done and what Christ will do. Because of the epiphany of grace and the epiphany of glory. So as we read through this text, look for those two appearings and see if you can see that structure as we read it. Paul writes, excuse me, in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. First, we see in verse 11 that grace has appeared. We're looking back to what has happened. Grace has appeared. And the first thing I want us to notice is that grace is not abstract. We so often treat grace, the grace of God, as an abstract noun. Something that God gives that kind of is something maybe like money that that he gives and we can have more of or less of and it might run out someday. That kind of abstract thing. But that's not how Paul treats grace. He says, the grace of God has appeared. When he uses the word appeared, when he uses that that Greek word there, he's using a word that Paul consistently uses to refer to either Jesus' first appearing when he was incarnate and his lived and died and rose again, or to Jesus' second appearing when he comes back to redeem his people. So when Paul says the grace of God has appeared, he's not talking about an abstract noun, like the word grace appeared. 
He's talking about grace as a person. Grace has appeared because Jesus has appeared. Grace is not abstract, but grace is inseparable from the incarnation of Jesus. We see this in John chapter 1. John writes, excuse me, John writes this in John chapter 1. He says this, John chapter 1 verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace cannot be separated from the person of Jesus Christ. But so often we treat grace like it's this thing separate from Jesus. It's not. Grace appearing is grace only in Christ Jesus. And this grace does something. Paul says the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation for all people. Grace in Jesus saves, right? Jesus saves. This is fundamental to the gospel. Jesus saves. Grace saves. Grace brings salvation by justifying sinners. By justifying sinners, by declaring them righteous. You and me as sinners, enemies of God, have been declared righteous by the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ. His death for you and for me. His resurrection vindicating him as the grace-bearing Son of God. You and I have been saved by grace. Ephesians 2, right? says, by grace you have been saved. It's not something you've done. It's not works that you may boast. It's a gift of God. It wipes the slate clean. It declares us to be righteous like Jesus is righteous. But it's not really merely a reset button. It's not just bringing salvation. It's actually doing something to change us as well. And this is what Paul says in verse 12. Notice the grace of God brings salvation for all people, makes salvation available to all in Christ. And then, in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace doesn't just save us. Jesus doesn't just save us. Grace in Christ trains us. The theological word we use for that is sanctification, right? Grace in Christ Jesus sanctifies us. Jesus himself trains sinners to be sanctified, to be holy. This seems counterintuitive to us when we think about grace sometimes, because so often we abstract grace, take it away from Jesus and make it something on its own. And then we say, well, grace, grace brings us forgiveness. And so grace lets things go, right? It's not a, not a big deal if I sin. I don't have to pursue righteousness because I'm under grace, not the law, right? We say, we say that's legalism to say that you need to be righteous, You need to pursue holiness. Uh, Grace just means you let that go. Friends, that's called antinomianism. Antinomianism, anti-lawness or lawlessness, which we've been freed from in Christ. We are trained by Christ towards godliness. We are trained by Christ, Paul says in verse 12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Grace 
Rather than making works unnecessary, grace makes good works necessary. Now, why is that, you might ask? That's a good question. Why does grace make good works necessary if we're saved by grace, not by works? It makes good works necessary because grace is inseparable from Jesus. And Jesus is holy. Grace comes to us in the form of Jesus Christ, the holy Son of God, and we are called to image Jesus. We are called to be holy as he is holy. That's what we were meant to be. That's what God calls us to be in Christ Jesus. And so for us to be united with Christ and yet to have nothing to do with good works is an oxymoron. It can't happen because Jesus himself devoted himself to good works. Jesus himself displayed the holiness of God in his good works. We are united to Christ in new life. And Paul puts it this way in Romans to help us understand how that works. He says this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. Paul says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Right? If grace saves, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know this argument. Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? In newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right? The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 7. Verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's his conclusion. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. You see how grace demands good works? Grace requires that we do not live as those who are slaves to sin, that we do not live as slaves to the worldly passions Like we once did. Grace requires that we now live the truth of our new life in Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself is holy. Therefore, grace requires godliness, good works, holiness. Grace trains us this way. We become learners in the school of grace. How does that work? How do we we get trained to be righteous when our, our flesh wages war against it? The answer is... 
that by being united in Christ, we are, we are saved. The grace sets us free from sin in Christ Jesus. We are given this ability now to not just slavishly follow our sin and worldly passions. And we are shown how to live by the life that Jesus himself lived. We are trained by Jesus himself, this grace that trains us, shown us how to live. Jesus shows us a life that renounces the God of self, renounces the God that says, I have to have what I want. I have to have what I think I need and teaches us to live for the sake of others. Just like Jesus did right in Philippians 2. He didn't count his godliness a thing to be used for his own advantage. But he counted it a thing to be used for our advantage. He laid his life down for us. He humbled himself, even becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. For you and for me. That's what Jesus trains us to do in his grace. He trains us to live just like that. And he enables us to live just like that. By freeing us from sin and by sending his spirit into us. To walk that out, friends. What this means for us and how this helps us is that our myopic vision, our tiedness to the present and to what's right in front of us and is ultimately a tiedness to ourself. It's ultimately a tiedness to either legalism or lawlessness. Legalism that says, I'm not justified in Jesus. I need to justify myself. And so I've got to pay close attention to right now. To make sure that nobody has anything against me. That I'm, that I'm in the clear. That I'm living uprightly enough to be accepted by God. A, a, a vision that says, is obsessed with my self-justification and my present standing. But guess what? The grace of Jesus frees us from that by saving us and justifying us. So we no longer have to justify ourselves. The grace of Jesus that brings salvation, as Paul says in verse 11, that justifies you, friend. So you don't have to justify yourself. It kills legalism. It kills it. It destroys it. Not only that, though, we're also tied to this vision of the present because we are so tied to living for pleasure, living in the moment, living for exactly what we want and making sure we get it. And we're so worried that we won't get it. That we won't get what we think we need for ourselves. That we're obsessed with the present. But guess what? Jesus, in training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, the grace of Jesus that trains us teaches us how to live for another. How to not be so absorbed with just living for ourselves. It kills then lawlessness, right? That's even what Paul says in verse 14, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus has done that work so that we can be freed from those forces that pull us into the present only. And we can be freed to look back and to remember the grace given us in Jesus Christ. We can be freed then to remember grace. 
We do that, friends, by remembering stories of God's grace, knowing our Bible, knowing the stories of God's grace that are written down for us. The time and time again that God is faithful and kind to his people, that God keeps his promises. I'm reading through Jeremiah right now, and I've been reading through Kings and seeing over and over how God's people are unfaithful. But even when they are unfaithful, God remains faithful to his promises. We have a record of that, friends, that we can look back to and remember. Most importantly, we have the record of the cross, right? If God has given us Jesus, how will he not also with him give us all things? But friends, we have more than that even. You have the record of God's grace in your own life. If you know Jesus, you can look back in your life and remember the ways that God has shown and proven his grace to you over and over and over again. All it takes is a little walk down memory lane. Look at some old pictures. Think about your past. Think about where you've been and where God has brought you by his grace. Think about the ways that Jesus has trained you in renouncing ungodly and worldly passions and in living self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Friends, we've all grown in sanctification if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time. You can look at that and remember and be encouraged. Another thing you can do, another thing we can do, is leverage the collective memory of the local church. What I mean is, when it's hard to see God's grace in your life, when you have trouble remembering And when you can't think of a single story that you learned in Sunday school of God's grace, that's what the local church is for. That's what one another gathering together is for. We are called to gather together and to sing to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We are called to gather together and to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And how do we do that? By pointing each other to the grace of of Jesus Christ by calling each other to look away from our myopic view of the present and look back to what Jesus has done. I need that reminder every week and so do you. Leverage the collective memory of the local church, friends. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be for one another. But we're not only called to look back, right? We're called to look forward to, not just back to what Jesus has done, but forward to what Jesus will do. And that's where Paul goes next. He says, continues in verse 13, we're to to be trained, right, in all this, living this way, godly lives in the present age, and then in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. We live in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. And what is that hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice again, glory is not abstract. Glory is not separated from the person of Jesus Christ. We're not waiting for this abstract thing called glory that we don't really know what it is. And we don't really know why we're supposed to be excited about it. 
No, friends, we're waiting for Jesus. Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, Hebrews chapter 1. Right? We're waiting for Jesus, who in his face we see and behold the knowledge of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're waiting for Jesus, who is glory. Listen to how he's described in the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Friends, that's the glory that we're waiting for. Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. It's a blessed hope. It's where our hope is turned because, because this glory that is in Christ Jesus will right every wrong. This was alluded to when John says he's got that sword coming out of his mouth. Jesus comes to judge and to make war. Every enemy will be defeated. Right now, Psalm 2 says the nations rage against God and against his anointed. But friends, that that is not forever. One day when Jesus returns like this, he will defeat All the nations, all those who oppose him, he will crush with a rod. And all those who find their shelter in him will be blessed. Jesus will defeat every enemy. When he returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess without exception that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Philippians 2. When he comes, when he returns, perfect justice and perfect peace will prevail over everything. You see that in Isaiah chapter 11. When he returns, right? Revelation 21, 1 through 4. What will happen? This beautiful picture of the end. Revelation chapter 21, 1 through 4. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He himself will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things 
have passed away. Friends, death will be gone, defeated. There will be no more coronavirus. There will be no more miscarriages. There will be no more watching your loved ones slip away. Friends, all pain will be gone. There will be no more chronic disability. There will be no more disease. There will be no more reason for sorrow. Because, because the glory of our great God and Savior has appeared and will be with us. What a day. It's a great hope. It's our blessed hope, as Paul says in verse 13. Because when the glory of Jesus appears, he will right every wrong. Not only that, though. Not only that. We get to share in that glory because we are his bride. When the glory of our great God and Savior appears, it is the glory of our husband appearing. Paul says in verse 14, That this Jesus is the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When you see those words, people for his own possession, that should trigger some memories for you. If you've read the Old Testament, if you've read in Exodus or Deuteronomy, you might recognize that language. It's covenant language. It's what God called his chosen people, Israel, his people for his own possession, his treasured people in Deuteronomy 7, for example. When we see this language of redeeming, it should bring to mind God redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt. He did that, and then he brought them together and called them his treasured people, his people for his own possession, his chosen people. And Paul, here in the New Testament, is describing what Jesus has done for you and I in the same way. It's covenantal language, friends, which means it's marriage language. This language is talking about you and I as Christ's bride. He's purified a people for his own possession, not as slaves, but as a bride as those whom he loves. And so his appearing, the appearing of the glory of God, is the appearing of our husband. United to our husband, Jesus, we share in his glory. That's what Colossians 3 says, right? Our life is hid with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. We share that glory And when he appears, every chance to object. If anyone has a reason why these two should not be wed, let him speak now or forever hold your peace. Any objection to why you should be joined with Christ will be gone. There will be no more reason that you can think of or conjure in your head or the devil can try to convince you is true why you should be separated from Christ. Because we will be with him, every objection will be silenced, and we will be pure. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 5 says as much. 
Paul is talking about husbands, but he's talking about husbands in the context of Christ and the church, right? Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. What did he do? And gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's our future, friends. That's that's what Christ is doing in us, even as he saves us and trains us in righteousness. He is purifying us. Right? Paul says that in verse 14. He gave himself up for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. To purify for himself a bride. Our husband gave himself for us and he is returning. And what that means for us is that what we see now, what our vision is so absorbed with now, Our myopia at the now, our nearsightedness, that's not the ultimate. That's not ultimate reality and truth. That's not the end of the story. What is now is not the end. What is now is not as it will be now, Paul says, we see in a mirror dimly, don't we? We see in a mirror dimly. And so when we see In this world, what looks like prevailing injustice and prevailing lies. And there seems to be no way they will ever get better. Our hope is not in it getting better here. It might get worse. It probably will. But our hope, our blessed hope, is in the appearing of the glory of our husband, Jesus Christ. And ultimately, his glory righting every wrong. His glory causing truth and justice and peace to prevail forever and ever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. So when it's not right now, we don't have to lose heart. We don't have to lose hope. We don't have to be so absorbed with why it's not right now and what to do about it. We can be freed from that. Because we are assured that justice and truth will prevail. And we don't have to hope in worldly systems. Mm -hmm. This has tremendous implications for how we respond to this election season and this coronavirus crisis, doesn't it? We do not have to hope in these things being fixed now Mm -hmm. by human means. Because we have a blessed hope that will appear. The glory of our husband. This glory and the appearing of Jesus assures us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that our labor right now is never in vain. Because even if it doesn't look like anything is happening, even if it looks like it's pointless and futile, and we may as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Even when it looks like that, that's not what's true. That's not what we need to look to. We need to look to the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That teaches us. This future glory teaches us what is truly lasting. What is ultimate reality? And that's Christ joined with his bride. 
See, friends, we're, we're not waiting as single people longing to be married. We're waiting as a bride already married, waiting for the consummation of that marriage. A mere dimly now, a faint reflection of that is the joy that a husband and wife experience on their wedding day as they feast with friends and as they consummate their marriage in sexual union. Friends, that is such a dim reflection of the reality of the joy, the intimacy, the union we share with Christ when he appears in glory. We don't wait as single people hoping to be married. We wait as married people waiting for the consummation of our marriage. This, friends, is the reality that will last. Our union with Christ as his bride. Governments will pass away. Families will pass away. We're not given or taken in marriage in heaven. We are brothers and sisters in Christ in heaven. We are the bride of Christ. That is the only thing that lasts. As it is the only thing that lasts, it teaches us now how to live. Because we are not single people, we don't live as single people, do we? It would be unfaithful for a bride who is married to her husband to live as a single person, wouldn't it? The bride, a wife, lives in light of her husband. And a husband lives in light of his wife. We see that even in marriages now. How much more so with Christ and his church. We are, as a local church, a kingdom outpost, a spot on this earth and in this time where the glory of Christ that will appear starts to shine through a little bit and break through as we live out being a bride for Christ, right? We live to please our husband. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 14 that Jesus gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Who are zealous for good works, who love what their husband loves. That's what Paul's getting at. That's what we're called to be as the church. We're called to love what Christ loves. That's why the grace of God and the glory of God in Christ Jesus requires good works, requires zealousness for good works because we are not single anymore. We're married. And with that covenant relationship of love and union comes responsibilities. All of these things, looking back to what Jesus has done and looking forward to what Jesus will do, can really be summed up as looking to Jesus, right? If, if grace is inseparable from Jesus and glory is inseparable from Jesus and we're called to look at grace and we're called to look at glory, then we're called to just look at Christ. It's not rocket science, friends. It doesn't take a degree from Yale to comprehend this. Right? It's simple. As simple as looking both ways when we cross the street. It's foundational to living the Christian life. To living the now that we must look to Jesus. 
So the question then for us is, are we fixing our eyes on Christ? Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus? Do you live in a way that helps you or hinders you from looking to Christ? Because it will be one way or the other, won't it? What you do with your life, what you devote yourself to, what you prioritize, what you long for, how you spend your time, will either help you or hinder you from looking at Jesus. We're not, not only that, though, we're not called to walk this alone, are we? When Paul is giving us how to live in Titus 2, he says, right, that older women are supposed to teach what is good and so train younger women. And he says, Titus, as an older, mature Christian man, is supposed to show himself in all things to be a model of good works. Our godliness matters not just for ourselves, but for the sake of others. Are you living a life that helps your brothers and sisters in this bride look to Jesus? Are you living in a way that helps your brothers and sisters behold Christ? That's what we're called to do. Are you doing it? Am I doing it? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. And if we find the answer is no, we need to not then try to justify ourselves because we have been justified. We need to instead let Christ's life train us and his coming glory give us the motivation Mm -hmm. to work hard. Mm -hmm. Yet it's not the grace of God. It's not us that work. It's the grace of God that works in us, right? Paul says that about himself. He worked harder than anybody, but it wasn't him. It was the grace of God at work in him. Are you doing this? And are you prepared to persist in doing this through suffering? Because friends, the reality of our present circumstances and why they are so tempting to draw us into and to cause us to just look at that like we stare at our phone screens is because there's so much suffering. There's so many trials. Through many trials and suffering, we enter the kingdom of God. Not because... God just likes to be mean. Not because God's not sovereign and in control, but because we are not living in our final home. Right? We are longing like Abraham and Sarah and all of those who by faith went before us for the home that is to come. We are citizens of a different kingdom. We are brides waiting for our husband. Longing for that. And while, they're, while we're apart, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be longing. Are we prepared to persist in faithfulness to our groom? Mm-hmm. That's what we're called to do. Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 12, right? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, 
despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Friends, we are called to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. When we do, what happens? The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of what? His glory and his grace. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for coming as a graceful Savior who gave us what we did not deserve in giving us your righteousness, your own righteousness, and in training us how to walk in your ways by your Spirit. Thank you for sending the gift of your Spirit into us to make these things true in our hearts, to help us live out this reality. Fill our hearts with longing to see you return. Fill our hearts with longing for the glory that will set everything right. Help us, Jesus, not grow weary or faint-hearted, to not lose hope. And help us encourage each other to hope and to look to you. We pray. Amen.